Hello, it's Thursday, January the 13th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is The Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... The Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner complaining about criticism for her accent and grammar. I'm speaking to one of my colleagues who's a northern lass who knows the value of grammar. The High Court has ruled against the government's preferential treatment. Fast track for PPE contracts. It hasn't got much attention because, of course, the Prime Minister's been in the dock over parties in Downing Street. The Duke of York, what does he do next? Does he go to court or does he settle? Either way, he's a loser. And so is the royal family. But first, the Prime Minister is defying calls to quit after his statement to the Commons about the boozy Number 10 gathering. A number of Tory MPs are now saying he's got to go. I'm speaking to one of them who's calling the loudest for Boris Johnson to stand down, but not yet. So Boris Johnson is predictably defying calls to resign from his own side after admitting to attending a boozy gathering at Number 10 during the first Covid lockdown. He apologised but then said he thought it was a work event and technically inside the rules. Today the Prime Minister's cancelled a trip to Lancashire where he faced more questions after a family member he said tested positive for Covid and he's currently isolating. One of the Prime Minister's more trenchant critics is Sir Roger Gale. He's the Conservative MP for North Thanet, um, who has called for the Prime Minister to stand down. Sir Roger, what struck me, not just that you have spoken out very forcibly about the Prime Minister, but there have been very few backbench MPs supporting him. We've had the predictable uh, um, uh, statements of uh, support from Cabinet Ministers and Ministers, but not from your backbench colleagues. I have no idea, Andrew, of the level of support uh, that I've got within the Parliamentary Party because I haven't been canvassing it. This is not a campaign, as far as I'm concerned. It's not a, a, an oust Boris campaign. It's not um, having gone around saying to people, will you please put in a letter to Sir Graham Brady, or have you already done it, or anything like that. So I just, I genuinely don't know. Um, it appears from, at the moment that there are three or four people who've broken cover and said in terms that they are calling for the Prime Minister's either resignation or for a leadership election. Um, I'm not particularly surprised that a lot of particularly younger members probably feel constrained. And you think they feel constrained because some of those would argue, or Number 10 would argue, they owe their seats to the... Prime Minister's uh, performance in the last election? To some extent, I think that's true. There's a degree of residual loyalty there. Um, the Red Wallers know that he probably won the election for them on the back of the Get Brexit Done campaign. And I suppose they are rather hoping that he may be able to work the same magic again. There are people who are straightforward, ambitious, and don't want to block their copybook. Um, there are others who are genuinely and fiercely loyal to the Prime Minister in a way that I suppose I never have been. So if you add all that lot together, I don't think it's particularly surprising. Mm. But what remains to be seen is whether or not the necessary target figure of 54 letters to Sir Graham Brady is submitted. And it may well not be at this stage. Um, and if so, what then happens? What I am aware of is that there is no great desire, and I share this view, by the way, there is no great desire 
for a leadership campaign now. Yeah. And the reason for that, of course, is because we don't want to change the leader in the middle of a pandemic when we've got enough on our plates as it is. The problem is that the timing, to some extent, is dictated by events, dear boy, as they yeah. say. Yeah, quite. The Prime Minister's um, justification, if that's the right word, Sir Roger, uh, his defence yesterday that he thought it was a work event. How do you think that's gone down with the public at large? I know I'm pretty sure you're not convinced by it. What do you think of you in your constituency in other parts of the country? Judging by the number of emails that I've had, which won't surprise you to know have not been inconsiderable, mm. um, it's gone down like a lead balloon. Yeah. I'm just nobody gets it. Nobody believes it. No. What have you? I mean, it, it, yeah. You know, it's 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 the duck principle. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Well, if it's got drink and it's got food and people are having a making whoopee in the Downing Street garden, it's probably a party. Yeah, yeah. At a time when we were in the first lockdown, what have you yourself, Sir Roger and Sir Graham Brady? I know these things are a matter between you and they. Um, have you submitted a letter yet? Will you? Oh, yes. No, yeah. I, I, but I, I put in a letter um, a year ago. Fine. I put in a letter when uh, Do you have to Johnson rem- yeah. declined to dispense with the services of um, Cummings after the Barnard, Barnard Castle, Castle affair. Yeah. I, thought, well, I thought that level of uh, indecision and lack of judgment told me that the person was not fit to be Prime Minister. So I put in a letter then. I've refreshed it since. That's I've what I was going sure to ask still you. Valid yeah. and it is. Right, so, so, it's, so it's gone back in, if you like. Yeah. And on Dominic Cummings, ironic, isn't it? I wrote a big piece in the Mail yesterday, or was it the day before, uh, pointing out that m- just about all of the uh, evidence about the parties have all come from Dominic Cummings. So there was the Prime Minister defending a man who we know lied about why he drove to a beauty uh, spot to test his eyesight. He finally admitted that wasn't quite the case. Uh, and and yet now Cummings is um, firing rockets from the sidelines. It makes you wonder why the Prime Minister ever hired him in the first place. Does that question his judgment in your mind as well? Well, I, I did say to Johnson, after to his face, by the way, after um, the, the Barnard Castle affair, if you don't get rid of that man, he will bring you down. Uh-huh. And that is quite clearly what he is intending to do. I think he is completely poisonous. Um, and it grieves me that I am probably, to some extent, myself playing into his game because it's quite clear that Cummings, for his own reasons, wants to bring the Prime Minister down. I don't want to bring the Prime Minister down. For the sake of bringing the Prime Minister down, I believe that we need a change of leader because I don't think that Mr Johnson has the qualities that we need in a Conservative Prime Minister. But that said, look, I think I've always tried to be fair about this, Andrew. Mm. Um... I was a Remainer. Uh, people now say I'm a Remainer. Well, I'm not. I accepted the result of the referendum. It's called democracy. But um, he got Brexit done. He said he was going to do it. That was his electoral promise, and by and large, not completely, but he's more or less got Brexit done. He, I think, has made, apart from a slightly bumpy start, which was common across the globe, he's made a pretty fair fist of the pandemic, management of the pandemic, not without some errors, but it was a learning curve. He's, his team have delivered the world-beating vaccination program that saved thousands of lives. You know, he's done a lot that's good. And it saddens me that he suffers from the same disease that Mr. Blair suffered from and Mr. Trump suffered from, which is 
an inability or an ability to be very economical with the truth. Yeah. They seem to be three of a kind. They say something, and because they've said it, it's true. They believe it's true, and I actually genuinely believe they convince themselves that what they're saying is true when it's not. And you say you don't want a leadership contest now, it's the wrong time because it would be a great distraction from ki killing off this wretched virus, the pandemic. Uh, does it have to come so as soon as we do come out of the pandemic, Sir Roger, in your view? Well, in a sense, it's dictated by, by the events, by, by the course of history. I mean, we can't go on like this. I, I'm saddened because when, when the Prime Minister started his speech at the dispatch box on Wednesday, mm. he began with an apology, which was the right thing to do. And I thought it was pretty good. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is, this is going quite well. And then suddenly... Yeah. And, and this, is the, this is the flaw in the man. We got this unnecessary, actually, yeah. explanation. That, oh, I thought it was a, a working meeting. Um, and you think, well, hang on a minute. This is the guy who, at the dispatch box on December the 8th, said... Um, I am convinced that there have been no parties in Downing Street when actually he attended one of them. Yes. So he misled the House. And, and that is, a, as you know, in politics, is a very serious offence. It's a great, not a great start to the new year, Sir Roger. I'm sure we're going to talk about this again. That's Sir Roger Gale. He's the Conservative MP for North Thanet, reminding us that he has indeed refreshed his letter to the chairman of the 1922 committee, seeking there to be a no-confidence debate in Boris Johnson. So what does Prince Andrew do next after the New York judge rejected his motion to have the case against him, uh, uh, alleging that he had sex with Virginia Roberts Dufre when she was a teenager, having it struck out? The Duke of York now faces a hugely expensive court case unless his lawyers can convince Miss Dufre to settle out of court, although they're still pursuing another technicality that because she lives in Australia, she cannot take part in court proceedings. On the line now is public relations consultant and royal commentator Richard Fitzwilliams. Richard, he's damned whichever way he goes, isn't he? Because if he settles with Miss Dufre, that avoids, avoids a potential, well, not potentially, a hugely embarrassing court case. But people will always assume he's got something to hide as he'll never be able to clear his name. If he does fight it in court, the collateral damage he suffers and the royal family suffers could be overwhelming. Oh, it's absolutely disastrous, as you say. Uh, whatever he does is simply a, um, an outcome which uh, he could not possibly wish. If he does nothing, there will be a default judgment almost certainly in her favour. Uh, as you say correctly, if he settles, settlement clearly is linked to some form of admission of guilt, at least in the public mind. Yeah. And, of course, it's not just what he's prepared to settle for, it's also what she might well be prepared to settle for, not only money according to recent reports, but also um, some form of apology. Uh, he has, of course, vehemently denied anything. Uh, the thing is, uh, to fight in court is absolutely out of the question. Uh, the last royal that uh, excludes Princess Anne mm. uh, on a matter uh, dealing with one of her dogs in 2002, who fought, uh, or who at least uh, the last royal who was a witness in a court case you have to go back to the 19th century yeah. and it was the seventh husband of Wales. so it's uh, it's unthinkable the media circus internationally would be so 
desperately destructive, and all this in the year of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Uh, yeah, it's, it's unfathomable and unthinkable. Um, you do have to ask, Richard, don't you, has the Prince of Prince Andrew's entire strategy been wrong from the beginning? Perhaps he should have settled this years ago, quietly, discreetly, and perhaps none of this could have come to court. It would have been a lot less dragged out, because now the whole world is talking about Prince Andrew, much to the relief of Boris Johnson, I can tell you, in number 10. Uh, and uh, whatever he decides, it will be headline news uh, across the globe. Well, I think the way he's handled it from the very beginning has been questionable. I mean, he did in uh, 2015 uh, issue a statement denying uh, uh, Virginia Roberts' Jeffrey's claims. But of course, in the court of public opinion, the car crash interview, so-called, it was of Krakatoan proportions. It was so utterly ghastly uh, on Emily Maitlis' uh, news night. I mean, that was just awful. Can you just imagine that in the next stage, assuming hypothetically this went ahead, oh, uh, that yeah. he was uh, cross-examined by Virginia Robert Jeffrey's team on some of the charts, some of the uh, allegations that he made there, and some of his statements? It would be terrible. Um, the, as you've alluded to it, it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this year, February the 6th. She succeeded her father, George VI, 70 years on the throne. The celebrations are planned for June. This may well be settled by then, Richard. Is it possible that Prince Andrew could be ex completely excluded from those celebrations? I think it is not only possible, but likely that he will be excluded from any of the celebrations. And that, I'm afraid, will include the service of Thanksgiving at St Paul's, where he to appear this would detract from what the nation will be commemorating, and that is 70 years of truly remarkable service by the Queen. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that he is not going to take part in any royal engagements uh, in the future. And the other problem, of course, is that there is Maxwell's Little Black Book. There are others being interviewed, mm -hmm. uh, linked to Epstein and Maxwell. I'm assuming that there will, it's very possible, there might be further revelations of one sort or another, but it's, we should remember that he promised to cooperate with the FBI to help the victims are trying to trace Epstein's accomplices. That's something he hasn't done as well. And not only that, but photographs, especially the photograph taken in 2001 with him and Virginia Roberts, as she was then, and Jelaine uh, Maxwell. But also, of course, uh, people are constantly reminded of seeing the photograph of him and Epstein. And yeah. also, what were Epstein and Jelaine uh, uh, Maxwell doing at Balmoral? That photograph surfaced mm. uh, during Maxwell's uh, trial. Um, we, we don't know what the Queen thinks, but we can assume that she's deeply hurt and upset by all of this, Richard. The last question for you is this. He still is the associated with a number of military charities. Some of them have already indicated publicly they want him to stand down from those. He has to get on with it, doesn't he? Frankly, yes. Uh, military links and also there are over 100 uh, I saw um, counted yesterday uh, that he is a charity that he's all patronages that he still has and I mean it's only a matter of time I suspect before he loses all 
royal patronages, charities, and links. And then, of course, there is the matter that is going to come up of his title. It's, uh, I mean, only an act of parliament could deprive him of it. It's most unlikely there'd be anything of the kind. But everyone has to bear in mind Harry and Meghan, um, they have their HRHs, but they don't use them. Possibly that might be some sort of precedent. I mean, we really got a, a serious situation here which needs diffusing. Indeed. That's Richard Fitzwilliams, public relations consultant and royal commentator. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the High Court has ruled against the government's preferential treatment given to two companies to award the nearly £600 million worth of PPE contracts. It was in the so-called VIP fast track. The law sort was brought by the Good Law Project and Every Doctor and it argued that the use of this VIP lane gave an unfair and lawful advantages to the companies and that half of the £592 million involved went on expensive equipment the NHS couldn't even use. Joining me now is Jolian Morm QC, who is the director of the Good Law Project. Well, that was a pretty stunning victory in court for you, Jolian Morm. But what does it mean? Um, I mean, that's a very good question, actually. We can't change the past. Um, the VIP lane was set up uh, for PPE contracts. Uh, we don't know how much money was spent through the VIP lane. We do know that the total of spend on PPE contracts was in the order of £12.5 billion. Pounds. We know that a VIP lane was set up for test and trace. We don't know how much was spent on that VIP lane, but we do know that the total spend on test and trace is in the order of £37 billion. So in total, approximately £50 billion, some proportion of which uh, has gone to uh, those chosen through the unlawful uh, VIP lane. Um, One cannot change the past, obviously. Uh, For the future, uh, I think it's incredibly important that um, ministers, political advisers, civil servants all understand that they cannot uh, give preference to those referred by, uh, uh, in the generality, the officers of ministers. That is just not a proper use of public money. And she does say, does she not, in her ruling, Mrs Justice O'Farrell, that the two companies involved, uh, that they, they were prioritised not because of, uh, uh, because of who they knew rather than what they could deliver. These two companies knew people in government. Well, they were both VIPs, uh, and she says of both of them uh, that they got special advantages because they were VIPs, that yeah. uh, is her finding about what the VIP lane does. Um, it's fair to say uh, that she also finds that they probably would have won um, contracts anyway yes. uh, because of the volume of product that they were offering. We have some difficulty um, with that finding, actually, uh, and we are uh, likely... Um, to put it before the Court of Appeal. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. We just don't think there was evidence before her that justified um, that conclusion. We haven't yet reached a final determination, but but I think that the case is likely to go on. She actually says about these contracts, it would have been very likely they would have won the contracts anyway. 
Yeah, well, we have we have quite a few difficulties with that, actually. I mean, uh, if you look at the tree and judge it by its fruit, uh, as you pointed out in your introduction, mm. um, half, I think probably more than half of the money that was spent uh, on uh, Pestfix and Iander uh, was spent on product that ultimately couldn't be used. So we're talking hundreds of millions of pounds on any view. Uh, there are some very serious criticisms made of the due diligence that was done on Pestvix and on Iander. Um, we don't see ourselves how she gets to that conclusion. Certainly, uh, the National Audit Office pointed out that it was far more likely that you would get a contract if you went through the VIP lane. And so we just don't understand how she can say with that degree of certainty uh, that these contracts would have been awarded to these entities in any event. Um, we're, we think we are likely to put that before the Court of Appeal. Very interesting. If I could ask you just finally, I don't think you've ever suggested, and this court ruling certainly doesn't suggest it, there was no attempt by ministers or ministerial advisers or people involved in making these decisions to award these contracts. There was no attempt for personal aggrandizement or personal to any personal monetary gain from any of this. But that's absolutely right. Um, uh, in these cases, we didn't have evidence to suggest that those uh, inviting uh, these VIPs into the VIP lane were motivated by financial gain. But that's not the entirety of the story, because the National Audit Office has identified that there was a high risk of fraud in PPE procurement. The uh, case, well, I won't mention the case, um, so, so as not to animate your lawyers, Andrew, yes. but there is a case that Good Law Project has referred to the Serious Fraud Office, where we think there are um, many, many signals um, suggesting uh, that there might be fraud. There are an awful lot of rumours um, from people who are reluctant to speak out. So it's absolutely true, uh, and Iander and Pestvix are entitled to hear me say the civil servants uh, and um, uh, anyone else who is involved in the referral of these two companies into the VIP lane are entitled to hear me say that I have no evidence suggesting that either of these referrals were motivated by fraud. But I do not uh, think, uh, I have not said, uh, and I cannot say, that that is true of all of the referrals into the VIP lane. Look, you know, the reality is this. You would expect um, in a pandemic where vast sums of money, 50 billion odd pounds, is flying around without proper uh, normal um, procurement processes in place, without proper safeguards in place, a degree of fraud. I don't say that as a criticism mm. of anybody in particular. I say that as a reflection on the human condition. What, what I find really troubling here is that Unlike in other countries where um, authorities have got involved in investigating, where prosecutions have been brought in the United Kingdom, there seems to have been a decision at, a, at an institutional level 
um, or decisions at institutional levels, because there are lots of different people who could have investigated fraud, um, not to look. And that I find really, really worrying. Fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you for that. That's Jolie Morm QC, um, who's led this case in the courts uh, and hinting, and we'll get him back if they do appeal it. He's the director of the Good Law Project. Just to remind you, the High Court has ruled against the government's preferential treatment given to two companies, awarding them almost £600 million worth of PPE contracts. So Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, who is the MP for Ashton under Lyme, she's gone on social media because she's rather upset about criticism of her accent. She says, I've been on the media this morning, so my accent and grammar are being critiqued. I wasn't eaten educated, but growing up in Stockport, I was taught integrity, honesty and decency. Hmm. Isn't she the one who called all Tories scum? Joining me now is Iram Ramza, a commissioning editor at the Daily Mail, who's written a fabulous piece for Mail Plus, where she describes herself as a northern lass who knows the values of grammar. And Iram... Uh, that's the point isn't it it's probably not her accent people are objecting to it's the grammar because as you point out Rayner asked the Prime Minister was you there I at the party it's her grammar not her accent it it is um, and um, and and she has said this before several times that whenever she speaks that she is mocked for her accent, that people make fun of her because she's from the north and that they say she sounds quote unquote thick or stupid but it's actually not her accent because if you if you look at um, Parliament you'll see that there are several MPs who do have regional accents mm-hmm. so um, you have for example John Trickett uh, yeah. who's from Yorkshire, John, Ath- John Ashworth who's from Bury, Greater Manchester yeah. so not too far from uh, Angela Rayner you have Joe Stevens as well, uh, who is Welsh. Mm. So it's not necessarily about her accent. It's to do with her choice of language, as I've pointed out. So she has, as, as, as you said earlier, she has uh, called Tories scum before, and it took her a while to apologise for those did. comments. Yeah. Um, and she also she had to apologise, uh, I think, in 2020 for calling uh, Conservative MP Chris Clarkson Clarkson's scum in Parliament, she did. Uh, and 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 funnily enough, he's actually from Haywood in Lancashire, so not too far from her either. Yeah. So, you know, you you could hardly call him a posh no, Tory. Exactly. Boy. Now, which where are you from, Iran? What part of the country are you from? Uh, so I'm from Oldham, Greater Manchester. Um, okay. Not too far from Angela Rayner. I have met her on several yeah. occasions. And as you've well. got a, you've yeah. got a terrific accent. Thank uh, you. And but you speak. <laughs> clearly concisely and you use proper grammar it's funny you say that but you know i i like to think that i do speak clearly albeit with an accent yeah um but when i first made friends in london some of them said that they couldn't understand a word i was saying which i found really strange um i like to think i'm quite well spoken yeah. and people do could you understand, understand what they were saying <laughs> well, I should have joked. I did yeah. uh, I say that as a joke. I said, well, it's funny because I don't understand you yeah, either. Yeah. So that makes uh, us even. Cockney rhyme. Yeah. Of course, William Hague, when he was Conservative leader, he had a very distinctive accent. He was from Rotherham. Now, um, uh, nobody could ever fault William on his speeches. Exactly. He was a brilliant orator and a great speaker. But when I used to hear him on the radio, I used to cringe. It wasn't his accent. 
It was his voice. It was his voice, the way he The spoke. way he <laughs> spoke. And I think that's another problem for, yeah. problem for Angela Rayner. So it's not the accent. It's not just that she gets the grammar wrong a lot. It's the way she says it. Yes. It's the, it's the same with Gavin Williamson, isn't it? Former yeah, education Tory secretary. Yeah, He's got this very strange sort of voice. And he's also from, uh, from Yorkshire as well, I believe. Um, but he people do make fun of his voice and the way he speaks it's, uh, I think Henry Deeds our sketch writer once said he has a long drawn out way of speaking mm. which people object to um, and you know you have Sir Lindsay Hoyle as well he also the speaker has. yes yeah. he has a strong yeah which I'm very partial to I do like a, a Yorkshire accent but then I'm biased because my family were raised in yeah. Yorkshire now you do argue that there there is still snobbery around accents yes. and that's there's no doubt about that and we still don't hear many uh, particularly distinctive uh, accents if you turn on the BBC, which I don't very often, actually. Mm. I'd rather listen to other places. But there is still snobbery, isn't there? There is. I mean, research does show, and, you know, this Angela Rayner does have um, a point when it comes to, to snobbery around accents. You know, research does show that there is a perception that received pronunciation English mm. is is regarded as proper English mm. um, and it makes a person sound more educated whereas you know those with a Liverpoolian accent are seen as the least trustworthy I know do you know when I took a job for the Birmingham Mail 30 odd years ago 35 years ago um, I was working in their district office in Bromsgrove in North Worcestershire, quite green and quite leafy. I rushed, I'd only been in the building an hour, and I rushed out and found a call box and rang a friend and said, oh my God, am I going to get this terrible accent? Because I couldn't believe how strong the uh, Birmingham accent was, even 30 miles from Birmingham. And as you make the point in, in your piece, the Birmingham accent is deemed the least attractive. It is. People think it sounds a bit sad as yeah. well. It always comes out um, bottom when people ask what's the sexiest accent. Yeah. And unfortunately, West Midlands is right at the bottom there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Killing Eve star Jodie Comer, she said that she faced some prejudice because really? of her accent initially when she went for an audition many years yeah. ago what's your favorite accent um i do like a yorkshire accent right. yes and uh, a french one as well oh, I see. oh yeah and yours of course uh, well i don't have an accent do i particularly you have a uh, probably uh, an rp accent yeah maybe? probably i mean i came from swindon um and um when i did work on this take this job on the birmingham paper the head of the office a very brummy woman called sandy she called me preppy and i said actually you know if you go 30 miles south of here everybody speaks like me oh right okay yeah that was my line and it's it's funny how we um say that because um you know yeah i think in recent years there have been certain celebrities or public figures who have tried to downplay their accent mm. so that they can sound more like one of us mm. so you know tony blair when he was campaigning once, yes he would drop his t's estuary english yeah and, and he was mocked for it yes he was because you know things like that are seen as pretentious yeah um, but on this issue with with Angela Rayner, I think she's just she's just playing this working class northern class to try and deflect any criticism of her because she has, you know, she's said some very very silly things before. She she's made some appalling comments, especially yeah. with the Tory scum, and that's what people object to. You know, no one really 
uh, I don't think anybody really cares that much or objects to the fact that she is from the north or that she's working class. You know, there are so many people out there who want more of an authentic voice representing yeah. them. But when you have someone who is using incorrect grammar uh, on radio and is supposed mm. to be the deputy leader yeah. of the Labour Party, it just doesn't come across very yeah. well. Yeah, and of course, um, she's a heartbeat away from being Prime Minister because if they win the next election, Labour, and he becomes, anything Goodness. happens to uh, yes. Keir Starmer, she steps up. Um, do you think she could, what can she do about it? It's not too late, is it, to learn proper grammar? It, it's not, because if you look at her public image throughout the years, she's gone through a bit of a transformation. Mm. So, you know, her hair has changed, yeah. her dress, uh, her yeah. sense of dressing, that's changed as well. So clearly someone is giving her advice on that. Yeah. She could easily um, ask somebody for lessons when it comes to grammar or yeah. English. You know, lots of, wasn't it, Margaret Thatcher also had help. With she the had her she voice lowered. Yeah. Because when she started as leader of the opposition in 75, she sounded like a shrill home <laughs> county's housewife. It was terrible. That's rather sexist. Rather sexist. <laughs> That's how it was always said at the time. But she did sound terrible. So they got to her and she submitted to, to the advice. And mm. um, nobody would ever call her a shrill housewife after no, that. No, they didn't. Um, uh, so, Raina, could it? But you see, I think you put the nail on it. She revels in the idea that she's the working class girl. Yes. Um, made good so and she still doesn't quite get that what we do object to is the fact she just can't speak properly exactly that is Iran Ramsey read her fabulous piece on Mail Plus and she has the misfortune to often look after my copy for the Daily Mail and she looks after it very well I must say thank you for joining us that's all we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail download the Mail Plus app Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.